0: Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus, I'm Cody Cook, and my guests are John D'Angelo III and Ari Spivey. John was a former Marine deployed in Afghanistan, now the man behind anti WarVet.com. but you can learn more about him at his website or his story in my August 2019 episode where I had him guests. Ari is an artist behind Failed Kingdoms. You can find his singles on SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify. Maybe, maybe some more, but at least those. And So, I've asked you guys here partly because you're a cool dude and uh, all, but also because I think we're all like libertarian Christians. I think you guys are maybe more radical than I am. I think you guys would both identify as anarchists. Is that correct? Yeah, that's yes. Correct. Okay. So I'm not quite there, but I, I see. I see the appeal. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I and I know that John, in particular, it, it seemed that you had the same kind of puzzlement that I had um, with kind of how libertarians were trying to deal with COVID and and the reaction to it. And it seemed like we were kind of all over the place. So that was one, basically that was the the reason I wanted to get this thing started. But um, as we're recording this, uh, we're kind of right in the middle of this whole um, controversy and reaction and and protests and riots about the, uh, the the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And that sparked all these conversations about police brutality all over again. And while I, I don't usually like to talk about specific events, uh, current events or politics um, specifically too much um, on the podcast, I kind of like every episode to be relevant no matter when it's listened to. I think some big picture stuff here that we really can get into by talking about these specific issues. And, uh, and I think it's tough too, just because I mean, I've honestly been nervous thinking about like how I want to talk about this because police brutality is such a kind of a complex thing, and it seems like there are often very sort of simple answers depending on where you're coming from politically to what the issue is and how it's resolved, and people get very heated <laughs> when you start talking about stuff like this. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm hoping that I can we we can really kind of have an, an open discussion and and you know come up with some some good answers, but also sort of be sensitive to the fact that this is really a tough topic. So yeah. um, anyway, so maybe let's go on for that. So basically with 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 George Floyd, the one thing that I think everybody seems to agree on, that I know even conservatives who normally are like pretty suspicious of police brutality charges, uh, I think everybody seems to pretty much agree that the police officer who handcuffed Floyd, put him on the ground, put his knee and body weight on the man's neck until he died from lack of oxygen, I think pretty much everybody agrees that this guy is a killer and that he ought to be held responsible. Um, and actually, I think just today he was arrested. So I think there's, there's not really too much disagreement that what this officer did was shameful, anti-human, indefensible. But after we say that, there's a lot less agreement because um, it seems that how you see this incident kind of depends on the political narrative you filter the world through. And I don't want to talk too much, but I'll say just one thing really quickly, and then maybe we can open it up a little. Um, I'm kind of reading this in light of an essay that was written by Arnold Kling, an economist, called The Three Languages of Politics. And he sees basically all all political issues uh, placed into one of three dichotomies. There is a progressive, um, arguably Marxist, but also progressive, Dichotomy that sees every political issue through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. There's a conservative um, dichotomy that sees things through order and chaos. And then finally, there's a libertarian dichotomy that sees things through freedom and coercion. And so in an issue like police brutality, a conservative is likely to see the police as agents of order and anybody who that they, they have any kind of conflict with necessarily then is this agent of chaos. And so the police need to be supported to stop the chaos from raining. And a conservative would likely look at riots that are going on right now and say, well, there you go. Now a progressive would would see that obviously very differently. Uh, and I think the progressive narrative is closer to this oppressor, oppressed thing, but it's still not perfect as far as I can see it because there are going to be examples where that doesn't fit. I think about like what happened in Ferguson where everybody, all these protesters, just knew that Michael Brown was innocent because simply because he was black and a white police officer killed him and he became this sort of de facto face of the movement and really ended up not being its best face. Um, and so it turned out that, you know, obviously while police brutality is a problem, there was this simplistic filter that was put on this situation before any data or evidence was, was, was put forward. And so but d- despite the fact that I think we, we've seen where that doesn't work, this kind of Marxist progressive narrative seems to persist. Um, I've got progressive friends on Facebook who are defending riots, defending riots, not just explaining the psychology of why they happened, but literally defending them. And even weirdly enough, going back and defending the, the French terror of the 18th century, <laughs> because their political lens is if you're an oppressed or disadvantaged class, everything you do is justified and we don't have to hold you to any meaningful moral standard. And so I don't think that's the solution to the problem. And obviously the conservative lens isn't the solution to the problem. Um, and it, because it just sort of assumes the basic innocence of police, because they're the sheepdogs keeping us sheep safe from the big bad wolves of the world. Um, so that's a lot of background to kind of maybe kind of lay out this this, this topic to talk about it. But uh, as you guys look at this issue, how how are you reading it? Is, is did any of those filters seem to make sense of it, or or am I? Is there something else that I'm missing?
1: Yeah, I think I think I think the progressive lens really uh, it really does have. Uh, the whole it doesn't nuance the the entire situation enough and I think that um even in terms of the conservative lens uh it doesn't nuance um it doesn't nuance the situation enough either because um I I know this from from experience with uh um, talking to a, a lot of guys a lot of guys right now about this particular situation and they are they instantaneously um resort to to, a, to apologetics for uh, for law enforcement. And it's, it, I, think that's, I think that's so problematic because it just, it's almost like it makes light of what's, of, of what's actually going on in terms of this situation. And in, in, in terms of the libertarian, uh, in terms of uh, a libertarian point of view, I think there's a lot more leeway, actually, in terms of a libertarian point of view, because um, we can actually nuance it better than the uh, better than the liberal nerd better than the liberal point of view and the conservative point of view actually can, because libertarians, we can admit that there's probably racial tyranny in terms of law enforcement. And we can also admit, um, and we can also admit some of the things that conservatives actually uh, like some of the things that conservatives actually talk about. And so I think libertarian, I think the libertarian position is actually, it actually meets in the middle and not only that, we also uh, libertarians we also can recognize the fundamental problem uh, the fundamental problem in terms of dealing with um, state law enforcement and it's the very fact that they cl- they have a, they they claim to have this um, monopolizing uh, political authority to do things that we couldn't um, that we ourselves couldn't do as private citizens and so i think in terms of a libertarian position we have the ability to nuance it better than conservatives could and liberals actually can.
0: So so from where you see it, the problem is not necessarily racism, even though that's a a factor, but the real real problem is violence, right? Right. It's it's basically violence to me. Yeah. Which obviously, you know, if you have a race, if if you're able to get away with being violent and not really being questioned for it, if you're also racist, then you might target that, that violence in a certain direction
1: yeah but if 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 that violent apparatus is moved out of the way, then the racist is just a private person and it 's just a private person attempting to uh, aggress against you and without that without that badge of authority if you try to do that if you were to try to do that and you were just a private citizen, you 'd probably get shot and so I really do believe that that is the big problem and it 's the problem of viewing um, the state as having these special rights. And I think that's the fundamental problem with this. It's the aggression behind the state. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, sorry, go on, go on John, you, sorry, you go on. I,
2: I, just to that point, like, I, I think my social media feed is filled with things that make me want to pull my hair out on a daily basis. Every time there's an event like this, I have uh, white liberal friends who spend so much time trying to show that they're on the right side of a given political issue and instead of actually showing any interest whatsoever in looking at a single layer deeper than what MSNBC is talking about. And on the flip side, it's all of my conservative friends on Facebook who are too worried about like preserving whatever it is that we have now. And when you talk about those um, sort of, spectrums of the three given political ideologies even when you just put it in those terms i think it's really clear that the libertarians is the most broad and able to capture um, social structures uh, most easily because life isn't just chaos and order and life isn't just oppressor and oppressed Um, and anytime you frame given situations like that you can see obvious um, contortions of your worldview. Whereas I I think it is fair to try to view political life through coercion versus freedom. And, um, you know, I I just said there's a viral Facebook post going around, I'm sure both of you have seen listing um, mundane acts that black Americans have been killed doing. and, And it is prefaced by saying, as a white person, I don't have to worry about my kids, doing all of these things like um, writing a bad check or playing cops and robbers like Timmy Rice um, or pulling out my license like Philando Castile. And I think all of those points are fair. Um, I I truly do. I also think that if you just ask a single question more about how it is that a cop can kill Philando Castile in front of his three-year-old daughter or kneel on the neck of um, Mr. Floyd or choke Eric Garner out um, in the middle of Manhattan, you can start to realize that it's not a matter of race alone because these same same things that happen to whites and Latinos and Asian Americans, and none of it um, is as neatly fit into a racial paradigm, but still very clearly shows that the problem lies in the structure of power Uh, that the state has this monopoly on violence and then the ability to enforce it has taken such odd turns that the culture almost necessitates this like extrajudicial violence in the streets. And I, I worked on an ambulance before I I worked in an ER as a nurse. I've seen police deal in, in these situations firsthand hundreds and hundreds of times. And I'm always disturbed by the, the ability to be so cavalier with other human beings. And I think it's because the culture so closely aligns with the military and Americans to the police are less than human by, by virtue of being a citizen and not part of the thin blue line that um, so, so valiantly guarded the house of this um, murder cop just a day before he was arrested like a scene out of three hundred or something, um, we see that the, the culture is 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 a huge part of this issue and is downstream from this giant power structure that nobody seems to be interested in questioning
0: yeah, it, it sort of seems like you know once you've given somebody the ability to to almost to kill it will. Um, it's a little too late to ask, yes, but is there racism or hatred in their heart? <laughs> like like, like maybe, maybe they already <laughs> have too much power. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, whereas I, I'm not quite ready to, to become like an anarchist, you know, I'd say at minimum, like what you said, demilitarized, we have a police force that thinks of themselves, as you said, like as a special class of people with extra privileges. And, you know, these, these people need to know that they won't be protected when they hurt people unjustifiably, just because, because just like anybody else, you know? Um, if if you believe that the state exists on, the, you know, on behalf of the will of the people, then they don't have any special rights that we have. <laughs> then, yeah, the absolutely. Cops should not have any special privileges or rights to do all this stuff with impunity or near impunity. And, and in addition, I think we need to be slashing our law code down to only the laws that we think are so important that we'd tolerate the police killing someone to enforce. Yes. <laughs> and I think that that's the thing if 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 you know, you see a guy selling loose cigarettes on the sidewalk and that's against the law and your police officer you're you're going to confront him about it and if that turns into violence you have to be willing to say, "Well, it was worth it because he was selling loose cigarettes on the sidewalk."
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and when Nancy Pelosi looks really nice in, in her, her suit, um, but she is the, and, and I use her as just an example of a person in power, and pick up a p- politician that's involved in legislation. They are the crux of the issue, not the um, the law enforcer, though I don't excuse them for their uh, sins. I, I think that it's important to
0: recognize just that. We've over-criminalized every aspect of American life. So- you know, what I kind of presented was almost like a minarchist view. Like, we we may need the state to do some things, but obviously, what it's doing now is not legitimate. Whereas, I think you guys come from this more like anarchist perspective. And the difference between the two is that I might say, well, you know, maybe the state's a necessary evil. You know, maybe um, in order to protect a greater expression of our, our rights to, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we have to institute a state that is kind of there to, you know, protect those a little bit, even though ultimately the state gets in the way of those things. um, The hope is that ultimately the state will allow you greater expression of those than if there were no, um, you know, no state at all. And, and, you know, there's the kind of Mad Max vision of society where, you know, they're just sort of, you know, (laughs) gangs of of people with machine guns roving the streets uh, because there's no social order. But um, the way you guys would look at it, um, the state is, you know, just this instigator of, of force, of violence. And so there's no, there's really no legitimate use for that at all. And um, are, are we, you didn't use this word or this phrase, but this notion of polycentric law that maybe we should, instead of having a public police force that serves the government, we have private police forces that serve customers um, and you know obviously don't want the kind of PR nightmare that this kind of thing causes um, yeah. would, would you guys say that would be a, a better solution to, to privatize police forces and, and allow people to uh, be customers of these these uh, businesses as opposed to having a government monopoly on force
1: well you know even even in terms of this this is how I tend to argue for what you what you just said in terms because you know, the vast majority of people that I talk to when we talk about government, um, they're, they're not anarchists. And so what I, what, I, what I basically say is is that people kind of understand that monopolies are bad. You know, they, you know they'll, they'll bring up like uh, Rockefeller, Rockefeller, you know, and people understand this. They, people just have this understanding that monopolies are a bad thing. And so I just say, well, I don't want to get, I don't want to do away with, um, the courts and the courts and whatnot that you that that are here right now, you can even even the law enforcement officers can stay here right now. All I want and all I would advocate for is that they don't have a monopoly on the things that they do. So um, independent, uh, independent law uh, rights enforcement agencies, which pretty much function just like, uh, you know, state police forces, they can now participate and compete with the state police, the state police uh, police forces, and so that's one of the ways. So I, I would agree with you that yeah, you actually said it uh, said that really well. But I I find that people tend to have a little they tend to be fidgety about you know going from a state to no state. So I pretty much say that look, it's not the very fact that these things are here; it's the very fact is the it's the point of how they're used and what they do. So you can have you can have Nancy Pelosi here and do all the and you know do whatever they do, but the point is is that they cannot, they cannot violate people's violate people's fundamental rights as human beings. And as long as they don't do that, they can function, they can function in whatever capacity you deem fit as long as it's not aggressing upon somebody else's rights. And so I pretty much argue that you can keep your courts, you can keep your law enforcement, you can keep all of that. But just don't stop, violently stop people from doing the same thing. In the issue of law enforcement, something like
2: 60 or 70% of all American law enforcement or security is private security anyways. And so the monopoly really rests in the enforcement of written laws from government. Um, And that absolutely needs competitors. What that looks like, I don't think is a very a huge leap for us as Americans. We recognize that uh, Paul Blart mall cop has um, a, <laughs> a, an ability to enforce the rules at a mall. I don't think it's a giant leap to say that in the town of Springfield, comma, whatever um, we would have private security agencies that ensure that you're not breaking um, picture windows in restaurants or uh, causing havoc, but there's a really stark contrast between the behaviors of average humans living their day and the behaviors that are able to be criminalized by police officers at the point of a gun um, with impunity. And so, you know, with this case with Eric Garner or with um, Mr. Floyd, I, I think it's important that we really think hard about what Cody was saying every one of these laws can devolve into murder or or the death of an individual. Let's not frame it so toxic. And what are we comfortable killing another person to make sure Americans aren't doing? And we can apply that today to the COVID lockdowns and other seemingly mundane activities all the way up to capital murder. But uh, I think we need to think much more critically about that and when there's issues like this one that arise with a police killing and questions of police brutality, we never look that deeply beneath the surface.
0: Yeah. So do you think that, um, if, if all of our uh, government police force were replaced by Paul Bart mall cop, you think we'd be in a better situation?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I do. Um, I, I would, I would only want one law in the books and it would be that he has to use the segue 100% of the time.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay. So I, I think we can transition pretty well from there into the, the, all this kind of COVID stuff um, because we're, we're kind of talking about anarchism and, and minarchism. And so the, the minarchism that I presented was just that, you know, government maybe has to exist, but we don't want it doing more than it needs to. And as as i read you know for example romans 12 and 13 i see something there like it seems to me that you know christians will sort of almost live like anarchists right you know we, we have a, a king that we follow and that's jesus and and you know his directives his laws are what we're concerned about but we'll you know we'll respect the fact that we're on foreign soil essentially on, on the soil of demons and uh, you know according yeah. to deuteronomy 32 uh, you know, seven and eight in perspective, but or eight and nine somewhere in there. Um, but ultimately, you know, we, we follow Jesus. Now, Paul in Romans 12 and 13 seems to distinguish Christians from the state. And he says, well, you know, Christians, we don't seek vengeance. We trust God. And then you get to 13. And he seems to say, well, one of the ways that, that God seeks vengeance against evildoers is through the state. Now, I think Paul is misunderstood if if you think that Paul is saying the state always does what's right um, and can never be reformed or never criticized. Uh, But he does seem to possibly argue that there's a legitimate role for the state. And so that's one of the things that sort of keeps me moving into the the anarchist perspective. But I I wonder if you guys maybe, maybe quickly have a a viewpoint on from an anarchist viewpoint. um, do Do you think the Bible defends that position, or is this something you've come to more philosophically? Uh, I, think, I think both for me. Um,
1: th- philosophically, because I, I, I'm obviously, well, theologically, I, I am a pacifist. I'm a Christian pacifist, and I would actually use Romans 13 and Romans 12 to argue for Christian pacifism because it separates. In um, Romans 12, it separates Christians. Uh, Christians' duty to never uh, enact vengeance from Romans 13. Romans 13 uh, in terms of the civil authorities um, using the sword and, and you know being God's uh, avengers and so I would actually I would absolutely agree that um, there is a role in some form or another to um, for i't I don't, I don't want to say the state though in Romans 13 and you, you know obviously there's there's different interpretations specifically within you know libertarian libertarian groups and, and a lot actually in terms terms of uh, reform tradition but um, I I tend to take the the view that Romans 13 isn't recognizing a legitimate isn't recognizing a necessary uh, the necessary legitimacy of the existence of a state I think what's actually going on in Romans 13 is that Paul is recognizing that there is a legitimacy for justice to be uh, brought about because I would even see Romans thirteen is an understanding Romans thirteen functioning in an anarchist society because fundamentally what Paul is saying in Romans thirteen it seems to me that there is a role for certain people, and obviously they can 't be Christians in, in my understanding they can 't be Christians in order um, that they go about exacting exacting a vengeance, so there is a proper role in society for justice to be brought about but I just don't think that that's necessarily entailing a, a state in terms of how it is right now. So I, 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 actually, I absolutely do believe that an anarchist uh, social order can actually be um, all, can also be um, understood in terms of Romans 13. So that's the reason why I would still advocate for Roman um, advocate for in anarchist society, even though I know a lot of people tend to say that Romans 13 legitimizes in some way, shape or form a state.
0: Gotcha. Okay.
2: And to, to kind of piggyback there, I think it's important first and foremost to recognize Paul's context in writing Romans uh, with his, his relationship with the Roman government and his persecution um, And understanding that, like, as he's writing these letters to Christians in Rome, he has to be very careful about not being perceived as um, countercultural. Now, that's not to take away from the uh, legitimacy of what he's saying, but I think that maybe the framing um, makes a little bit more sense there. Uh, Early Christians demonstrated that it's really important that we separate ourselves clearly from the kingdoms of this world and live uh, amongst ourselves, uh, as God-fearing individuals, looking to um, live out the call of being a Christian, from what I believe the, the Sermon on the Mount being um, the most important part of that, and something that we as American Christians tend to uh, try to skim over, maybe flip that page when we're when we're thumbing through our Bibles. Um, so I don't I don't disagree uh, with anything that's being said, but I think that. Um, ultimately, the idea that uh, government per se, as we understand it, is just to do good. As Paul said, I think everyone understands that there's been governments that have done bad. And we don't have to um, call Hitler to the, the fore to demonstrate that. I mean, there's been, there's been governments throughout all of world history, including at the time of the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Empire being uh, the most obvious one that uh, did terrible things to people that wouldn't align with Christian values. And so I think what's more important to recognize is that there will always be arbiters uh, between parties that is apart from like regular Amer- uh, regular individual life. And whatever that structure takes the form of whatever we choose to call it, it will serve as more or less of a government. But um, I think it, and this is lacking a lot in the Christian anarchist perspective is that, um, government isn't going anywhere. And I don't, um, I'm not so deluded to think that I'm going to live, uh, an anarchist life at any point or anybody that in the future will, I, I think that government is part and parcel with human, human life. But I think that it's important to recognize that we understand government to be this, um, this tool to preserve rights and codify them and ultimately enforce their preservation. And um, that doesn't have to happen with a central authority. um, And 30% of our income um, sending off our children to war, um, riding in the backs of chariots as uh, Samuel was told. And so I I think it's really important that like, this is a, I I get really irritated by um, Christian anarchists, particularly speaking in absolutes, because we are taking a very uh, subversive minority opinion. And so it's important to be really, really precise with what we're saying. I don't think Christian anarchists can argue that government, living without a government is God's call um i do think that it's the preferred social order and i think that we can understand romans 13 through the context that i just gave and be satisfied with the way that society is structured and still maintain an anarchist lifestyle um but i also think it's important to recognize that like life as we know it right now is so so complex and we can take the covid situation maybe to, to elucidate that that there are so many um layers of power and influence and um incentive involved those are the things that i'd much rather see peeled away than just the simple fact that we all agree it's important to vote every two to four years
0: gotcha so i guess moving more directly into the into the COVID discussion um do you guys think the United States government should, or, or, or states in the, in the United States, should have done something about COVID? Uh, and if so, what? Should it have been law? Should it have been guidance? Um, what, what, was, what would have been reasonable, legitimate, and, and fair to do? Uh, well, so I, I
2: work as an ER nurse, and I, I um, have seen a lot of this stuff you know, on on the forefront, um, I have said before it's so ridiculous that I finally got away from being thanked for my service uh, from being a marine that I always rankled at and wished w- never happened, and then became a nurse during a global pandemic, and I have to see more yellow ribbons tied around trees. Um, but th- this whole thing, I I think it's easy now w- in with relative hindsight to say, yeah, I think it's it's appropriate that that you can take the position that government didn't need to do anything. I wrote a piece for uh, the Libertarian Institute uh, in March, arguing that we have to be a lot more nuanced about the way that we as Libertarians approach COVID because it is a novel virus and it, it um, offers challenges that we are unfamiliar with and that make things messy. I still maintain that position, I, I, don't, um, I don't blame anybody involved in any of this. um, And I don't see the same conspiratorial angles that a lot of people do in this community. Also, I think that this could have been solved in a private society um, or not solved, but dealt with um, to to more or less the same efficacy. I'm not sure that centralizing resources and then dispensing them to various communities has ever born better results than um, free trade and uh, the ability for free prices to dictate where resources go. So the idea that like tests wouldn't be where they needed to be or ventilators or anything, I think is crazy to argue uh, if anyone's opened an economics book. And I know that we all have. Um, And I think that I'm, ultimately, I'm extremely disturbed by the response. And I i am sympathetic to people who are concerned that these laws enacted during COVID won't go anywhere um, and that will remain more or less in place or um, at least on the books. I, I'm sympathetic to that view. I get where people can be concerned about that. I'm not sure that that's the case. And I, I genuinely believe that most of the influential actors involved are trying to deal with this new situation as it unfolds. Um, But I don't think that excuses the mismanagement innate to government or um, the pretty gross violations of civil liberties that we've seen so far.
0: Ari, what do you think? Yeah.
1: Um, you know, one of the main concerns about this entire thing was, uh, I was really, uh, triggered by how the unilateral, um, Action—the unilateral action of the government—where the whole entire response to COVID nineteen was okay. Everybody needs to be doing the same thing. I mean, it was just a blanket response where, okay, obviously New York probably needs to, you know, enact some some kind of social distancing policies and not not specifically for everybody. And I think that's one of the main—that's one of the big ones that I that I didn't, I wasn't really too fond of because this is obviously, this obviously goes against libertarian ethic, uh, libertarian theory. You, you're, you cannot um, restrict someone to house arrest if they are not, you know, if they're not at, um, if they're not harming anyone. And so that was a big one for me. So I, I think what needed to happen in terms of the government's, in terms of the government's response, was to nuance, to nuance their, to nuance the response a lot more, and to not just have this one size, this one size fits all solution for um, curbing, uh, curbing uh, the COVID nineteen uh, virus. So I think what should have happened was, look at your own state, uh, make sure that, you know, what's going on, what are the demographics, what like what could possibly happen within the next, within the next uh, couple of months or so and do that accordingly. So don't just shut down the entire state because obviously there's going to, there's going to be economic uh, economic impact that is absolutely important um, in this discussion. So I I would, I would have preferred the States um, to not just piggyback off of each other. Okay. New York is doing this. So therefore we have to do this, especially because I'm in Florida. And um, COVID really didn't, it didn't, hit us that, it didn't hit us that hard. I mean, it hit us hard, but it didn't hit us that hard, if you, if you know what I mean. And so I wish that uh, the governor, uh, Governor DeSantis would have uh, not have just followed suit with what everybody else was doing. And they would have just handled these things individually on, on an individual basis.
2: We know a lot more now about the virus than we did. Uh, in mid-March when we decided to lock the entire country down. But uh, that g- the, the idea of even geographical um, decentralization for response being state by state, I don't think is sufficient. Because in Connecticut, where I live, I live in eastern Connecticut, which has remained uh, virtually untouched by COVID relative to um, other areas, including in Connecticut, where central and southwestern Connecticut saw significantly more cases it turns out that this virus wasn't what we anticipated, thank goodness. Um, But, and again, I I don't blame an overreaction initially uh, when we consider the the governmental sort of structuring that we have to deal with, but um, to have it have gone this long and to be um, so seemingly arbitrary and um, authoritarian in its enforcement uh, from cases of mothers being ripped from their kids at parks and surfers alone on beaches being pulled in by several officers. I mean, there's, there's plenty of cases to find of areas where, um, you know, when everything is a hammer or uh, when you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And so that's more or less the situation that we're dealing with now with COVID. And it's really disappointing to see and unfortunately will not cause the reckoning that I think we require
0: yeah, you know, I was inclined to be kind of open to, to a, a government response. early on um, you know, maybe partly because I'm I have some those kind of minarchist leanings, but it, it seemed to me that I mean, two things, two, two reasons why it seemed consistent with libertarianism to me to respond. One was because if you are a minarchist, minarchist and you believe that there are minimum roles for the state uh, to, to, to to perform. One of them, I, I would have to imagine, would be managing a pandemic. <laughs> and, and in addition to that, while while I understand what you're saying about house arrest for people who aren't actually sick being um, over the top because you know th- th- they're not really a threat yet, it does seem to me that when when there is, it is at the time we didn't know exactly how bad this could be, when there is this severe danger, if people aren't quarantining, then they're making a choice. To put other people at risk, and, th- and that seemed to me to, to be a um, at least a at least a, a light grade violation of the non-aggression principle uh, that libertarians hold to. So early on, it made sense to me for the government to have a response and, and maybe even some 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 regulations and orders. But as as it's gone on, my my re- reflection on this has changed a little bit because. It seems to me that for the most part, nobody, well, pe- people took it seriously who would have taken it seriously, even with just government suggestions or guidance. The people who didn't take it seriously, um, I think, used as their argument that there was some nefarious thing that the government was trying to do um, mm-hmm. by issuing these orders. And, and so they intentionally ignored it. <laughs> and so considering that, like, as you said, like these examples of of government overreach, police, you know, pulling people out of the water and stuff like, well, wait a second. I thought we were trying to get people to not like touch each other and get close to each other. How does that make sense? So, I mean, considering that it wouldn't make sense to strongly enforce these things and giving actual like laws or guidance is only going to be reacted negatively to by certain people. Maybe just like, you know, non-coercive guidance would have been the smartest thing to do. Um, and it also could have kept maybe some businesses open and hopefully they would have at least tried to follow some of this guidance. But if people are going to ignore it anyway, I want to just, just, just make it guidance.
2: <laughs> right.
0: And I mean,
2: it's the, the, the point has been made a million times over, um, but no epidemiologist can uh, draw upon education or, tr- or training or experience that they've had to make broad sweeping social edicts um, that are appropriate for a virus, regardless of whether or not they understand the um, intricacies of how a a pathogen is transmitted. So, uh, you know, we've probably all heard this, but issues like cancer patients not getting the treatment that they need and the UK coming out and saying early on, this was like a month ago in April, that uh, more patients would die from lack of cancer care. And, and pre-screenings than would of coronavirus or um, the the m- big reduction, and I've seen this anecdotally and been talking about it in my own ER, the big reduction in patients with like chest pain and stroke symptoms, stuff that we see regularly in the ER just wasn't there for six weeks. Those people weren't not having those symptoms at home because they found a new piece in in being locked down and therefore didn't have um, these health problems. These people um, had them and then waited on them, uh, waited on seeking care until absolutely necessary. And I saw the tangible results of this several times myself. And this coming from someone who works in a 24-bed ER, uh, not working in a metropolitan area. So this has been a huge... Um, a huge distortion of the way that we access care and interact with each other and interface with health. And I think it's really important that we, I think it's important and I know we won't do it. I think it's important that we really reckon with how we um, use things like CDC guidance and the government to respond to um, these sort of atypical challenges because this will absolutely have a net negative um, regarding government response than would have been the case if, if COVID were allowed to run, run rampant. And I, I know that's easier for me to say now that we're in uh, late May, but I, I, uh, I'm just really disappointed that we as a society will never really consider the structures and the Um, deference for experts and the the centralization of information with very little understanding about uh, unforeseen circumstances being so ingrained with public policy.
0: One thing I was maybe interested in doing, if you guys would be cool with this, is maybe quickly going over some stupid political talking points (laughs) that I noticed during this whole thing. We've got I've got a few that I noticed conservatives giving a few that libertarians gave a few that I noticed liberals giving and if you'd be cool with that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go through a couple of these um, yeah so um, yeah. I'll, I'll start with a couple of the conservative ones that I saw um, and I'll kind of group these together uh, one is that this was meant to persecute churches and attack small businesses. Now, I think that's a stupid talking point, but maybe you guys will disagree with me. So I'd be interested in hearing what you think. No,
1: that's a really stupid talking point.
0: I, just, <laughs> I, do, not, I do not. I do not
1: believe that this whole thing was implemented to oppress churches and small businesses. I really don't believe that. So uh, you know, that's the thing. That's the thing about about, about conservatives. They and this is a, this is another thing about conservatives, specifically when dealing with the left they view almost everything that the left does as an attack on them. And it's not necessarily mm-hmm. that. It's just the very fact that liberals, liberals are statists. And they obviously are going to, at some point, want to aggress upon and violate your rights at some point. And so like, it's just, it's just, it's just so, it's, it's so stupid for me. It's so stupid to me when I, I hear constantly conservatives say, a target point like that and it just it triggers me so much.
2: Yeah, well I, I I could have taken Ari's response and just put a period in like the fourth word. Uh I don't think this was implemented. Period. I the idea that like this was a, a government or man-made thing that was used to do achieve any goal, I think is absolutely insane. And I think that it's um It's not something that we can substantiate, and it's not something that we can justify considering the really diverse response with various global governments, and ultimately no understanding of what this is going to look like three years from now. I mean, I guess if we're all being told to stay locked down in 2030 or whatever, maybe there'll be a better argument, but a month into a global pandemic from a viral pathogen that we know nothing about, I always take the Occam 's razor line that like it's probably more likely that a bunch of bureaucrats who don't know anything and are elected into office because that 's the most effective use of their limited skill set. This is what you can expect from a group like that, and I think we as libertarians lose sight of what we 're talking about. We are the first ones to say that government is inactive uh, ineffective and and um, poorly manages the economy and society. And yet we give them the credence um, t- to imagine that they would enact this global conspiracy to infect Republican Trump voters or something. It's, it's, it's asinine, in my opinion.
0: Well, yeah, in, in addition that there's, you know, persecuting churches and attacking small businesses, it's like, I mean, there are also mosques and <laughs> synagogues and large businesses. And it's like, I think they, they forget that there's like, you know, small mom and pop, like grocery stores that are still open, but, but there's this kind of thing that like, I noticed that conservatives sometimes do where they, they, they tend to like make everything about them. (laughs) Like, um, which is kind of crazy to me, but, and I think maybe you've kind of already covered this, but an additional one that was kind of related is that government was, this was all about government trying to um, initiate some kind of totalitarian regime now on the left, there are things that you heard, I heard a lot too. One is, um, well, this is evidence that capitalism has failed and we should you know, be getting these stimulus checks all the time. You know, we, we should all have a universal basic income constantly. Um, so- what, about the,
2: what about the race angle, like we talked about earlier? This has been said mm-hmm. to be uh, disproportionately affecting minorities in America mm-hmm. and therefore any um, lack of response is therefore racist. I think that's an important, fun, uh, big D Democrat talking point.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the 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 role that racism I'm sure still has. I mean, you know, I, I've seen it. Sure. I, I think sometimes things are just kind of accidentally <laughs> turn out that way. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I, I don't know that there was like an intentional concerted effort to, you know, let's make sure that we really hurt black people with this specifically. <laughs> like, I think it's just, you know, well, and I think, too, the other thing that people sort of forget, I was just reading this in John McWhorter's book, um, Losing the Race, which he wrote in 2000, that there's this assumption that people have, especially on the left, that that blackness and poverty are, like, synonymous, um, mm-hmm. when the reality is, at least when in 2000, when McWhorter was writing this, McWhorter. Um, only about 20 to 25% of African-Americans were living in poverty. Um, but, you know, anyway. Right, yeah,
2: it's, it's just a, it's the manifestation of a very bizarre um, plank of left progressivism that everything has to be put through the lens of race or equity or um, oppression, as you, as you had said earlier. And so this is just the expected manifestation
1: of that.
0: But 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 was yeah, this? You, you,
1: you. Sorry, going Ari. Yeah. So I mean, com- coming from it, you know, as as a black as a black man, you you see this stuff in my community a lot, and so um, just out of just out of the experience, I know for a fact that we are raised to see that if there's any disparity whatsoever in terms of whatever it whatever it may be, let, let's say um, in terms of um um uh, uh, there's a disparity in terms of uh, different races being pulled over at you know being being pulled over and getting tickets and so we'll immediately look at the very fact that black people are let's just say more likely to be ticketed and we see that as a as an indication of racism or we'll look at for instance this um in terms of covid-19 um Black people being more likely to, you know, I, I, I guess, i mean, correct me if I'm wrong. COVID nineteen is being more likely to affect, in terms of death, uh, blacks. So, so the people will automatically people will automatically look at that and they'll see, okay, this is a disparity. Therefore, this is an indication of some form of a race of a of a racial aspect to. What's going on right now? And then they'll say, "Well, if you don't, if you, if you're not seeking to remedy this in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, state activity, then you are, for some reason, you are some, for some reason, you are supporting, um, you are supporting uh, the inequity that's going on within this country." And it's like, well, maybe, like, like you said, Cody, maybe it's just the very fact it's, it's just it just happened. Like why does it always have to be like we're being like black people are being like black people are being oppressed in this particular in this particular situation. What if it's just like what if it's just it just happened? it just happened and so I think for, for me um, I really had to get out of that get out of that you know dichotomy it, either it's racism or it's not racism. I had to learn how to nuance nuance pretty much the entirety of society as much as I possibly can because obviously um a disparity doesn't necessarily equal inequity and so that's a that's a really big one in terms of the black community and I think it needs I think we need to I think we need to deal with that a lot more because that really plays a big factor in terms of how we see um how we see racial uh, racial, racial uh Racial issue, ra- racially involved issue,
0: in terms of disparities. Yeah, well, it, it, it's somewhat off topic, but a lot of stuff you, you were saying made me think of that that book I just mentioned, uh, John McWhorter's "Losing the Race," um, which he writes as he's not exactly he's not exactly a conservative, but it, he's uh, primarily known as a linguist, but he's written a little bit on racial issues because he is, I think, skeptical of the kind of critical race theory stuff. Like, I, I think a big part of his argument is that, um, you know, slavery and segregation has a lasting effect in black culture and which he kind of is, he blames that primarily on a lot of the issues that are sometimes blamed on present day racism. And so one example he would give is like the education gaps. You talked about like, you know, the rates of people being pulled over and the education gap is often blamed on, okay, well maybe it's bad inner city schools that are underfunded. And then he looks at the data and points out, well, this is also true of middle-class African-Americans. It's like, okay, well, maybe that's not it. Maybe then these, these kids are just discouraged from learning. They don't, they don't want to learn because they're made to feel by racist teachers or whatever that, you know, they, they, they can't succeed. Um, and McWhorter's, McWhorter's whole, whole thing is, well, actually, this is something that's been internalized in the past and, and, and brought down from generation to generation, um, that at one point white people made black people feel like they couldn't succeed, that, they're, that they, they couldn't learn, they couldn't be as intelligent as white people. And then that became to be internalized. And there was a separatist attitude that became to develop where, um, you know, nerdiness or whatever is associated with whiteness. And so, you know, the kids who start to try to do well or are made fun of for acting white or whatever – you know, from, from McWhorter's viewpoint, you know, yes, racism plays into some of these things, at least, you know, for some something that may have happened in the past, but it may not be the case that there are, you know, white racists, you know, twirling their mustaches looking for some way to, to, to hurt black people constantly. Um, anyway, that's a little bit off topic, but it, it is interesting, I think, because we're talking about these very simplistic answers to problems that are sometimes more complicated. Absolutely,
2: right? And when we when we frame that amongst like a political society, that's, that has to see things in absolutes and feels obligated to, um, you know, fit every issue into like neat little, really poorly thought out boxes. I think this is what, this is the result. We don't, we don't have genuine discussions about any of these issues. And instead we see a lot of political tribalism,
0: which is terrible. Yeah, we, we, we got to find an enemy, right? It, it, a movement can exist without a God, but it can't exist without a Satan. And so, you know, we have to figure out who the Satan is. And, you know, the, the, we, I think there, there's something that I heard a conservative commentator, Jonah Goldberg, mention that we, we treat politics like entertainment and that we pick um, who we think the good guy is. It's sort of like, so like, I was just talking to my wife about this, it's Breaking Bad. So we watched Breaking Bad and the first time she watched it, She liked Walter White, assumed he was the protagonist, because he is, and just sort of was annoyed at his wife, because she's constantly like on his back, like, why are you killing people and making crystal meth? And (laughs) so when you watch it that way, you sort of see, when you see this guy as the hero, you're going to look at everything through that lens. And anybody who gets in his way is kind of like a bad guy, you know? People do that with politics. I mean, we can look at Trump, we can look at Obama. If you're a conservative, you saw Obama as this villain full stop. And, 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 you know, he was, he was, maybe there's a this smaller cast of characters like Pelosi or Schumer or whatever, but ultimately the liberals are, are the bad guys. And then Trump comes around and even though Trump isn't a conservative and doesn't believe in conservative values, um, you, you, once you've decided he's the good guy, you're going to, you know, be okay with just about anything he does. He he can Walter White and, uh, you know, shoot people and uh, on the street on, on fifth Avenue or, or make crystal meth or whatever he wants to do, but he's the good guy. So, you know, and anybody who gets in his way is the bad guy. And so the, the, these very simplistic, you know, who's the, who's the devil, who's the bad guy is, is, it doesn't help us very much. I've talked a lot and I don't know if anybody has anything to say, but I can move on to the next thing. If not.
2: <laughs> no, I, I just want to say, I, I've been seeing a ton of, uh, I'm sorry to keep talking to Ari, but um, I keep seeing a ton of like boogaloo Facebook, Instagram pages talking about um, the need for now being, um, for now having a need for violent revolution. And I, I think that it's really important to recognize that when we start framing things um, as clearly, clearly we are victims of this oppressive state and therefore violence is the only appropriate action. We are no better than the French revolutionaries who sent everybody to the guillotine, um, as we talked about earlier. And so I, I just, I, I think that we really need to reflect upon the efficacy of something like a violent revolution or using names like George Floyd and Duncan Lemp to, uh, as a rallying cry for, um, a violent revolution, I would challenge anyone listening who is sympathetic to those views to find me an example of when a violent revolution, um, had, had the, the intended consequences that they were hoping for. And I often hear the American experiment used as one. And I would say that, uh, the civil war, uh, the the people living during the civil war or people living now would, would maybe argue against that. And so, I, violent revolution is not going to get us uh, a solution to our problems. And I, I want to just kind of interject that while we're, um, while we're talking about all of these issues.
1: Yeah, I, 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 can, I, I completely agree. You know, it, when you, when you were saying that, what the thing that I really uh, wanted to stress is even in terms of, you know, our, our faith, just bringing it, just bringing it back to, you know, a, a Christian ethic, I don't see. I don't see any justification for that, uh, for any justification for that in terms of a Christian ethic, to begin with. And not only that, um, let's just say we, you know, we because we are anarchists. Let's just say if we were to start a violent revolution, people, people's hearts and people's minds have not been changed in favor of libertarian theory or in favor of the non-aggression principle. And so, even if you know we were to spark a a violent revolution and you know kill our pressures and you know all of this different type of thing I highly doubt that a libertarian order is going to sprout from that I think there's just going to be another I think there's just going to be another tyrant that that's going to be eventually put in there and so I think obviously I, I think at, at the grassroots level that's we need to be changing people's mind, people yes. people's uh, minds about about um, like, do we really need this? Do we like? Do we is the state really as fundamental as you once thought it was? And is it actually morally like? Is it actually morally permissible for the state to exist? So I think we as 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 libertarians and as anarchists, we need to because I don't think a violent revolution is going to help anything. I just think it's going to make it worse. Actually. And so I think at the grassroots level, we need to start changing people, changing people's minds about their relationship to the
0: state. Absolutely. Well, yeah, what happens is whenever there's a people's movement, the leader of that movement, after they get power, they say, okay, these people are doctrinally impure and they don't know what they're talking about and they're idiots. So I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm going to have to take a lot more power here and repeat essentially what, what the last regime did. Um, so yes, violence is, uh, is, is rarely the, uh, the effective solution that we think it is. So it's getting kind of late now, and I don't want to keep you guys on too long. So I might just ask um, one quick question, and I'll let you guys give your thoughts, and we'll close it up. So leaving aside this question, what the government should have done about COVID, what should we as Christians have done at the time, and, and what do you think we should be doing now?
1: I, I think that we, we should do the best that we possibly can to um, listen to the, listen to the experts. Um, obviously there were, there you know, there was false information going around, but you know, that doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that we, you know, they're the ones who probably know more, who know more about it than all of us. And so I think we should have listened to the experts. Okay. The CDC set up guidelines. We should follow and adhere to those guidelines as best as we possibly can. And, we, like, I don't advocate for churches, I didn't advocate for churches reopening, I and mean, I thought that that was their, you know, that was their right to do so, but I would have advocated for churches to not reopen, um, you know, because we have elderly people in our, in our, in our congregations, and I really do believe that, uh, fundamentally, it has a lot to do with just um, to, with love, with loving your neighbor, and, and, you know, not wanting to affect another person in terms of Transmitting transmitting the virus, even if you like, and you possibly possibly may have it because you may just you mean you might you might be asymptomatic. And so, for me as a Christian, what I would have advocated for was um, we social distance. We keep we we don't go back to church yet. Um, we if those who are elderly because they are at higher risk of um, you know dying from the disease. We keep, we make sure that those people are being, um, um, being kept, you know, being kept. Um, we, we, we cater to their needs and, um, we continue to do what we, we continue to do what we did after, I mean, before, uh, this whole COVID-19, uh, crisis happened. And so I really do believe that fundamentally, it's about loving your neighbor. It's about loving our neighbors and not wanting to contract the disease and pass it on to our uh, our fellow neighbors. Because I really don't believe that that's loving. I really don't believe that that's a very loving thing to do. And so I think we should have social distance. We should have uh, adhered to you know uh, to the guidelines that the CDC set up, um, and make sure that we c- make sure that we took care of the elderly. Uh, make sure that they had everything that they needed. It. Uh, that they needed, um, the resources that they need, that they are um, accessible. And I think that would have been a proper Christian response in terms of uh, COVID-19.
2: Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't disagree too much with you, Ari. I think ultimately, again, we're, we're working in relative hindsight. Uh, asymptomatic transmission has some, some big question marks now. And I, that was the single factor that made this the most terrifying is that you could walk around and unbeknownst to you, get someone else sick. That doesn't seem to, uh, with the few studies that I've seen, it seems like that maybe it'd be in question, which is great. But you're right, I I supported churches um, being closed or the elderly are at risk remaining home from, from um, services. I, I don't know that there's a, a blanket appropriate Christian response except for just as Ari said, we need to be uh, putting our neighbor above ourselves and being concerned with the well-being of others first and foremost. And um, whatever that looks like in your community or um, uh, for you personally, you you have to really challenge your presuppositions um, through that, that lens and say, you know, am I more concerned about supporting or refuting Donald Trump's given position or am I concerned with living out um, a good ambassadorship for, for Jesus Christ. And I don't think that that's a question that crosses many Christians' minds today. I think we're far too uh, steeped in, in political discourse to worry about tangible effects of our behaviors. So I don't know. I, my church is still closed. They actually took a poll to ask if they wanted the congregation wanted to open or close. And I didn't vote in it because frankly, I I don't know what the correct answer is. And I don't really want to be part of that decision-making process because I don't think as someone who's healthy and not concerned about the virus personally, um, that I have a lot of skin in the game. Uh, so I would feel terrible to vote. Yeah. Open the church back up and then find out that someone, um, had gotten it, uh, unbeknownst to other people or whatever. So, um, it's a complicated thing, and i I think that uh, when you inject faith into this and you start talking about how um, you can't get sick when you take the Eucharist because uh, God wouldn't allow for that, or you start um, you start kind of contorting the realities around you to fit neatly into your worldview again, as I've said so many times, I think that it's always has this always has um, terrible outcomes and so you absolutely can get sick if you go to church as a Christian and that doesn't uh, mean that you don't have faith and it doesn't mean that God isn't uh, real. It just means that viruses are. And so I I think that there's so many issues that play into this and uh, we could go on for hours and hours about it. But um, I guess the short answer for me is I have no idea what the correct answer is.
0: (laughs)
1: Yeah. It was a good response. I'm not going to lie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well yeah and you know I, I like what you said about you know fear I, i'm seeing a lot of people acting you know saying like you know if you're if you're trying to be careful that means you're afraid that you're not this you know brave god-honoring alpha male or something and so you shouldn't wear a mask for example um and you know I, i've got a seven-year-old daughter who i've told before you know you don't need to be scared of something but you should be careful you should be safe you know and that's a, a dis- a distinction that adults seem to not necessarily have made through some. <laughs> um, I, I guess what, what I might say in closing is Christians too often, I think, let the state co-opt our moral values either mm. by ignoring Jesus and following the laws, or in this case by resisting laws that actually might be commending good behavior just because the state said so. Um, yeah. And it seems to me if there's evidence that for example, wearing a mask can help save lives, just, just wearing the mask and who cares what Cheeto Jesus says um so how can uh, how can people find you guys um so i'm at
2: antiwarwarvet.com my instagram page is my most active my blog is not i have a three-month-old and an 18-month-old so i have my hands full um but uh you can check me out on instagram at antiwarwarvet and um i have a facebook page uh and it'd be great to connect with people uh let me know if you uh, heard from me from this podcast that'd be great and um i i'm just trying to get to know the people in my community a little bit more and, and grow my page organically so um that's the only place i'm at
1: uh yeah um you can i i don't have a website uh, but i do have my facebook page you can just uh look me up and find me at re spivey um i also have my Felt kingdoms uh Facebook page. You can look me. At, you can look me up there as well. I also have my my uh, Christian Anarchist page called uh, that's Christoarchy. That's C H R I S T O, archy, A R A R C H Y. And I also have my uh, Cosmic Restoration page, which is my Christian Universalism page, and it's spelled exactly how how it sounds. And so you can uh, find me at any of those pages. And so yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, having. Me.
0: Uh, letting me be a part of this yeah thank you guys so much for making time to be here this is a fun way to spend a friday evening (laughs) yeah it's pretty fun i enjoyed it awesome thank you guys so much yes sir thanks cody